Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Former President Trump pleads the fifth during questioning in the investigation into his business dealings. He calls the New York Attorney General's efforts a witch hunt. The FBI reportedly seizes a Republican lawmaker's cell phone a day after the FBI searched former President Trump's home in Florida. How will the Mar-a-Lago raid affect Trump? Some critics of the former president say it might actually help him in his political career. More victories for Trump-endorsed candidates in yesterday's primaries. That includes a win for Tim Michaels in the battleground state of Wisconsin. Find out more results from four states. Former President Donald Trump says he declined to answer questions for a deposition in the New York Attorney General's long-running civil investigation into his business dealings. The New York civil investigation alleges that the Trump organization misstated the value of prized assets like golf courses and skyscrapers and therefore misled tax authorities and lenders. On Truth Social, Trump said it's, quote, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in U.S. history. He added, quote, my great company and myself are being attacked from all sides. In May, the attorney's office said that it was nearing the end of its probe and that investigators had amassed substantial evidence that could support legal action. It said Trump's testimony is one of the few missing pieces. Trump says he declined the deposition questions at the advice of his attorney and wrote in a statement that he has no choice because of the unjust political and legal forces working against him. Republican lawmaker Scott Perry, a Trump ally, says the FBI seized his cell phone yesterday. That's a day after the FBI executed a search warrant at Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Representative Scott Perry says three FBI agents visited him Tuesday morning and seized his cell phone. That's according to the Epic Times, citing a statement from Perry's office. It said, as with President Trump last night, DOJ chose this unnecessary and aggressive action instead of simply contacting my attorneys. These kinds of banana republic tactics should concern every citizen. It comes a day after the FBI raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Trump's lawyer, Christina Bob told Epic TV's Facts Matter program Tuesday that the FBI was searching for what they deemed presidential records and seized documents from Trump's property. But she said the FBI had already inspected Mar-a-Lago around June when Trump invited them to search the property. We had been very cooperative with them before, and it, it's unclear to me why they went to such drastic measures to do this, but they did. And as far as the probable cause goes, they wouldn't give that to us, and they've requested that that be sealed with the court. While some Democrats have said the raid proves no one is above the law, Many Republicans and even some non-Republicans have questioned whether the raid was politically motivated. Former federal prosecutor Mike Davis told Steve Bannon's War Room Tuesday that even if Trump took classified documents, he took possession of them when he was still chief executive and had authority to declassify them. So when he left the White House with 15 boxes, they're not classified anymore. So this whole idea that President Trump Violate, violated some statute on classi classified records is complete garbage. Davis said the raid may have been illegally invasive because you cannot do a home raid if you can secure the documents through less intrusive means. He said there's no evidence that Trump wouldn't have cooperated. Government watchdog Judicial Watch is filing a motion asking the court to unseal the search warrant materials as soon as possible. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. 
questions are lingering after the FBI's raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Which documents were taken? When will the public find out? And did the FBI conduct the search appropriately? We bring in a former member of the Bureau who specializes in counterterrorism and security to learn more. Joining us to discuss the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago is Greg Schaefer, who is a retired FBI agent for the Elite Hostage Rescue Team. Pleasure speaking with you, Greg. Thank you for having me. As a former agent, can you start by sharing with us your perspective on the FBI raid on Trump's home in Florida? Well, first of all, it just befuddled my mind. Uh, as a former FBI agent, uh, it just it surprised the heck out of me, uh, as it did the rest of the country. This is completely and totally unprecedented. I don't know what the FBI, Department of Justice, or this administration was thinking by doing this. It was an overt act meant to embarrass the former president. It just shows the total lack of optics on their end. Uh, the rule of law obviously does not uh, play equal on both sides anymore with the Department of Justice and the FBI. And I think that's what the American public's greatest concern is, is, is the rule of law still in place in our nation? And Greg, what do you make of the fact that the attorneys on site were not allowed to watch the FBI's agents while they were doing their raid? Again, that's unprecedented as well. Uh, on most search warrants uh, that I have done, I've done several hundred, uh, you know, you can always have the person who owns the property that you're searching sit right there and watch the agents as they sit through and look for the items that are listed that are detailed and listed on in the search warrant. And what do you make of the fact that this was done via search warrant and not through a subpoena? Yeah, I think that's, again, that that was done intentionally as a show forced by the administration. Uh, I, I think a subpoena would have been a much better uh, course of action to take. It could have been done behind the scenes and not been an embarrassment to the Trump family, the Trump organization. Uh, again, uh, go, going this heavy-handed is what uh, concerns me and concerns, I think, most Americans is the way they went about this and, again, the optics behind it. Trump's lawyer says about a dozen boxes were seized in the raid. When will the American public know which files were taken, either through the Trumps or from <clears throat> public knowledge? Well, the Trump organization can certainly come out publicly and, and tell the American public what they believe was taken. I'm sure they have a, great indi uh, they have, they have a good indication of what was taken. But as long as the investigation is ongoing, you won't see the information come from the FBI. Now, at some point in time, through Freedom of Information Act, we may get that information. And also, at some point in time, the affidavit that supported the search warrant will also be released. And Republicans have made calls to take action against the FBI. What do you think needs to be done to restore the integrity of the FBI and people's trust in the agency? Oh, less than a million-dollar question. You know, I, I'm a constant optimist. I do like to think that a majority of the FBI agents, uh, some are still very dear friends of mine, are good, patriotic Americans. They have one goal in mind, and that is to put bad people in prison. Uh, but on the other hand, the leadership of the FBI and the DOJ seems to have been corrupted. I don't know exactly when that happened, but the seventh floor, the floor in which the director and his uh, minions uh, work on at FBI headquarters, that needs a, a clean sweep. You know, there are 56 field offices uh, throughout the country, and maybe the leadership of those field offices needs to be looked at as well. But, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not a supporter of disbanding uh, or uh, defunding the FBI. I think we do need that law enforcement arm in, in America. But uh, doing a, a, a good cleaning of the leadership, I think that certainly has to be done. Greg Schaefer, retired FBI agent, thank you for sharing your perspective on this. Thank you for having me.
The FBI raid on Trump's estate may help Trump's potential 2024 presidential run. That's according to critics. And while the FBI is supposedly targeting Trump over classified information, Hillary Clinton is profiting from hers. Here's that story. Mr. President! Some Trump critics are saying the raid may give the former president a boost if he runs in the 2024 presidential election. Joe Walsh, a former Republican congressman and a critic of Trump, applauded the raid. He says the FBI was doing its job. But he also tweeted, what happened yesterday handed the 2024 GOP nomination to Donald Trump. He added that some GOP voters were cooling on Trump in recent months, but now they're back to supporting him because they think the raid wasn't right. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang says the raid strengthens that case for millions of Americans who will see this as an unjust persecution. Alyssa Farah Griffin, former White House communications director and now a political commentator for CNN, says if the FBI doesn't find anything serious, DOJ just handed Donald Trump the Republican nominee and potentially the presidency. She added that the raid will be positive for Trump if it's seen as some sort of massive overreach. Trump has not yet officially announced whether or not he'll run in 2024, but he's hinted at it. And a day after the raid, Hillary Clinton was selling shirts and baseball caps with the phrase, but her emails written on them. The phrase refers to some of her infamous emails that were classified by the State Department, just like some boxes in Mar-a-Lago that were seized this week. She tweeted, every but her emails hat or shirt sold helps onward together partners defend democracy, build a progressive bench and fight for our values. Clinton co-founded Onward Together after losing the 2016 election. The organization has donated to more than a dozen people who have worked with Clinton in the past. Clinton says the hat sold out shortly after being released. Many of the candidates Trump endorses are winning in the GOP primaries. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg brings us more on Tuesday's primary in four states. In Wisconsin, Tim Michaels won the Republican nomination for governor with Trump's backing. I'd like to thank President Trump for his support, for his endorsement. He defeated former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. And, and my heart goes out to my primary opponents. Rebecca Clayfish, a tremendous candidate, tremendous candidate. Clayfish was endorsed by former Vice President Mike Pence. Incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers ran unopposed and will face Michaels in November. In Wisconsin's Senate primary, Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes won his party's nomination and will face incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson in the general election. Johnson easily beat his only challenger with over 80% of the vote. In Minnesota, incumbent Representative Ilhan Omar eked out a win in the House Democratic primary for District 5 with just over 50% of the vote. Her closest competitor, Don Samuels, had a little over 48%. She will run against Cicely Davis, who won on the Republican side. Minnesota's 1st Congressional District had a special election as well as its primary on Tuesday. The special election was held to fill the seat left vacant after the death of Republican Representative Jim Hagedorn. Hagedorn died earlier this year from cancer. Republican Brad Finstad beat Democrat Jeff Edinger in a close race to serve the remainder of the term. The same two contenders both won their primaries for the same seat, with Edinger netting over 90% of the vote and Finstad getting over 75%. They will face off again in November. Scott Jensen won the Republican nomination for governor with close to 90% of the vote, and incumbent Governor Tim Walz won on the Democratic side with over 96%. 
Vermont's Senate primary has Gerald Malloy winning the Republican nomination and Peter Welch for Democrats. And in Connecticut, first-time political candidate and Trump-backed Leora Levy won the Republican Senate primary. Levy is hoping to unseat incumbent Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal come November. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, a historical $280 billion bill for the semiconductor industry. What do industry leaders have to say about it? Find out right after the short break. Inflation may be easing. The price you pay for goods and services went up 8.5% in July. That's slightly less than economists predicted, which indicates inflation is backing off a bit. And it's down from June, which saw a 40-year high topping 9%. A key factor is gasoline prices, which have started to drop in recent weeks. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released the new data today. And President Biden signed a bill this week that would subsidize semiconductor production. U.S. chipmakers are welcoming the decision. Here are the details. The Chips and Science Act allocates $280 billion toward boosting domestic semiconductor manufacturing, research, and development. The White House says the bill will ensure the U.S. advances its scientific and technological edge. The CEO of New York-based microchip maker Global Foundries welcomed the bill. It used to be in the 90s that the U.S. manufactured 37% of the world's chips. Today it's down to 12%. So the problem is how do we go create an economic situation, an economic model that brings manufacturing back to the U.S. And that's what the CHIPS bill is to do, is to close the, the global competitiveness to make manufacturing a reality back on shore in the U.S. And global foundries, once the CHIPS bill is funded, at this very facility we're having this discussion at today, we'll be expanding uh, our capability to create more CHIPS in the U.S. Semiconductors are a critical part of many technologies, ranging from computers to cars, fighter jets, and hypersonic missiles. The bill aims to alleviate a persistent shortage that has affected the entire chip-making industry. There's more than just chip shortage in the industry right now. There's shortage of everything, whether it's qualified people who can install tools, construction materials, uh, high-purity stainless steel, the other types of uh, components we use to create fabs, and we're doing our very best to manage those, those shortages. On top of that, even as we manufacture, we use a lot of uh, specialty and high-purity chemicals and gases. And every day, we have to make sure that we're, we're maintaining those supply lines and the logistics required to keep our fabs operating. The bill authorizes $200 billion over 10 years to boost U.S. scientific research, an effort to better compete with China. It also includes a 25% investment tax credit for chip plants, estimated to be worth $24 billion. Firefighters successfully extinguished a small burning plane moments after it made a crash landing on a California freeway. The aircraft hit a truck before catching fire. Dashcam video recorded by the Corona Fire Department showed the aircraft engulfed in flames on the 91 freeway eastbound in Corona, California. That's before crews doused the blaze. According to authorities, the single-engine Piper Cherokee experienced engine failure when heading to the Corona Municipal Airport and made an emergency landing. The two passengers in the aircraft and the three people traveling on the truck were reportedly unharmed. California Highway Patrol Captain Levy Miller says the light traffic at the time of the accident averted a tragedy. And fresh evidence in a murder case from 1982. New DNA evidence places a 75-year-old Hawaiian man at the scene of the murder. Authorities are seeking his extradition to California. 
40 years ago, 15-year-old Karen Stitt was kidnapped from a bus stop in Sunnyvale, California in the early morning hours after a date with her boyfriend. Her body was found by a delivery truck driver in the bushes. She had been raped and stabbed. Her boyfriend was long considered a suspect, but advances in DNA technology led investigators to 75-year-old Gary Ramirez. His DNA was matched to blood from Stitt's jacket and from a wall near Stitt's dead body. Ramirez is a retired bug exterminator with no criminal record. He also served in the U.S. Air Force. A detective said Ramirez appeared shocked when he was arrested. If convicted, he faces a life sentence. A truck driver charged with the deaths of seven motorcyclists is cleared of all charges. The crash happened in New Hampshire in 2019. The truck driver faced seven counts of manslaughter and seven counts of negligent homicide in addition to a charge of reckless conduct. His defense attorney argued that a drunk motorcyclist drifted over the center line into the path of the truck. That motorcyclist and six others were killed in the crash. It took the jury about two hours to reach a verdict. The truck driver was found not guilty on all charges. And about 4,000 beagles are looking for homes after they were rescued from a breeding facility in Virginia. The dogs were headed for laboratory experimentation. In May, the Justice Department sued the company running the facility over Animal Welfare Act violations. Government inspectors found that their food contained maggots, mold, and feces. In addition, beagles were killed when they needed vet care and nursing mothers were denied food. Over an eight-week period, 25 puppies died from cold exposure, and in the overcrowded conditions, some dogs were injured in fights with other dogs. Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley says the effort to rescue the beagles started when the facility was discovered in 2019. The Humane Society has already taken in some of the beagles. The dogs will be passed on to specialized animal organizations and then seek new homes. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, China ends its week-long military drills around Taiwan. The island's top diplomat warns Beijing was using the drills to prepare for an invasion. And Japan holds military drills with the Solomon Islands. It is the first of its kind as Beijing is creeping closer to Japanese territory with its actions around Taiwan. That and more here on NTD News. Welcome back. China has ended its military exercise around Taiwan. This after rounds of warnings from Taiwan and reactions from the U.S. Here's more. A warning from Taiwan's top diplomat. That's as China's military drill near the island. China has used the drills in its military playbook to prepare for the invasion of Taiwan. It is conducting large-scale military exercises and missile launches as well as cyber attacks, disinformation campaign, and economic coercion in an attempt to weaken public morale in Taiwan. Wu says Beijing aims to control the East China Sea and the South China Sea via the Taiwan Strait. That way, Beijing can prevent the U.S. from aiding Taiwan. China started its drill last week, following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's landmark visit to the island. For your leadership. China's military has crossed the median line during the drill. 
That's the unofficial divide between mainland China and Taiwan. But Taiwan's defense ministry noted Chinese warships didn't enter the island's territorial waters. Here's President Biden's reaction to the drill. Mr. President, how worried are you about the situation in Taiwan? Because China is kind of keeping a bit of a grip around the whole island now. I am uh, I'm not worried, but I'm concerned that they're moving as much as they are. But I don't think they're going to do anything more. As for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she says Chinese leader Xi Jinping is acting like a scared bully. In an interview with MSNBC, Pelosi said, quote, I think that he's in a fragile crisis, adding that Xi Jinping is having problems with his economy. The Pentagon released an earlier estimate that Beijing would not take Taiwan within the next two years. A high-level official said on Monday that the assessment hasn't changed. Carl said a U.S. warship will pass through the Taiwan Strait in the coming weeks. But it's not just China. Taiwan is also taking its own action. The island picked up routine military exercises on Tuesday. Taiwanese military personnel were seen firing artillery out to sea as part of long-scheduled drills. Taiwan's defense ministry said the routine drills are aimed at boosting the military's readiness adding that they are not scheduled in response to China's recent military exercises around Taiwan. One mother observed the drills from a distance. She said her son was participating in the exercise. I'm coming here to see the results of what he's been devoting himself to from a distance and to help provide some moral support because I think soldiers are great, diligent and hardworking. Chen called Beijing's recent actions childish and unnecessary. China's actions are like a group of children surrounding you, yelling at you and telling you what to do. I feel it's quite childish. In fact, we all have our own standpoint, and a country has its own standpoint. China really does not have to do all of this. Local media report that the drills will start up again on Thursday. Japanese troops joined Solomon Islands Maritime Police this week for a joint drill. It's the first cooperation of its kind for the two nations. And today's Tiffany Meyer brings us more on the story. Beyond Taiwan, more drills are happening in the Pacific. Japan and the Solomon Islands held a military security exercise on Monday. A U.S. combat ship also joined in. The event marked the first drill of its kind. Japan and the Solomon Islands are about 3,500 miles apart. But their common concerns over China's growing military might in the region have drawn them closer. Japan is a neighbor to both China and Taiwan. It could face direct impacts if China invades Taiwan. Beyond that, it's home to the most advanced technology in the region and is an important U.S. ally. On the other hand, the Solomon Islands caught international attention earlier this year when it signed a deal with China. The agreement would allow Chinese ships to dock in the Pacific Island country. Fears quickly rose that it would allow Beijing to expand its military presence closer to both Australia and the U.S. The Japan-Solomon Islands joint drill is part of the West's efforts to counter the Chinese communist regime and its infiltration in the Indo-Pacific region. What are Beijing's intentions in the Pacific? China's ambassador to Australia is asked about the Solomon Islands. The ambassador denies any plan for a military base there. There is no intention for China to set up the so-called military base in Solomon Islands. 
China has been expanding its ties to countries in the Pacific Ocean in recent years. Beijing signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands in April, promising cooperation in trade and education. Nations, including the U.S. and Australia, expressed concerns following the announcement. South Korea is holding its four-day crisis management drills next Tuesday. They come before a major joint exercise with the U.S. later this month. The preparatory drills involve computer simulation training designed to respond to possible pre-war crises. The joint exercises are slated for August 22nd to September 1st. It will involve two major parts, one on repelling attacks and defending the capital Seoul, and the other on counterattack operations. The exercises are designed to counter escalating tensions in the region, especially threats of nuclear tests by North Korea. At a meeting of commanders, South Korea's defense minister cited strong criticism from North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. The minister cautioned that North Korea might conduct strategic and tactical provocations during the exercises. And Sri Lanka's former president has applied for entry into Thailand. The ousted leader has remained in Singapore after fleeing his island nation last month. Sri Lanka's worst economic crisis in seven decades has unleashed unprecedented turmoil in the country. Critics blame the downturn on the former president and his family's mishandling of the economy. In July, the ex-leader fled to Singapore after thousands of protesters stormed his office. He then resigned from the presidency, becoming the first head of state in Sri Lanka to quit midterm. He is expected to leave for the Thai capital, Bangkok, this week. With a diplomatic passport, the former president can stay in Thailand for as long as 90 days. According to a Thai foreign ministry spokesman, he has not shown any intention of seeking political asylum, and his stay would only be temporary. The Singapore government also confirmed earlier that it didn't grant him any privileges or immunity. And coming up, European airports are experiencing travel chaos. Staff shortages are leaving passengers stranded, and workers are demanding pay raises and going on strike. And Spanish offices, stores, and hospitality venues face a new set of energy-saving measures. They dictate how hot or cold people can keep their workspaces. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News. A shortage of train staff, labor unrest, and flight cancellations are some of the factors prompting a summer of travel chaos in Europe. Let's take a closer look at what's happening at airports there. Baggage chaos, endless queues, canceled flights. Scenes like this are common at European airports this summer. We were trying to get home to Denmark and um, our flight was canceled. So what's causing the travel nightmare? Strikes and staff shortages are forcing airlines to cancel thousands of flights. Staff are asking for better working conditions and big pay increases after sweeping job cuts and pay cuts during the pandemic. In Spain, Ryanair workers walked out for several days in July, causing disruption at many airports. Lufthansa Pilots Union is demanding a 5.5% raise this year and automatic inflation compensation going forward. The German airline was forced to cancel more than 1,000 flights on July 27th when its ground staff went on strike. In June, Norwegian Air agreed to a 3.7% pay rise for pilots, among other benefits, in a sign of what other airlines may have to offer to avoid labor strife. Airlines have cut thousands of flights from their summer schedules to cope with the disruptions. 
Major airports, including London's Heathrow and Amsterdam's Schiphol, have imposed a cap on passenger traffic. That's led to British Airways halting ticket sales on some popular short-haul flights to destinations like Paris, Milan and Amsterdam until mid-August. Airports and airlines are scrambling to hire more workers from pilots, security, border control staff to baggage handlers after many left during the COVID-19 crisis. Amsterdam's Schiphol is operating with 10,000 fewer workers than before the pandemic. Paris's Charles de Gaulle and Orly airports need to fill 4,000 jobs, mainly in security, maintenance and retail. That's according to airport operator group ADP and the CDG Alliance. Industry executives say these jobs are tough to fill since the work is often physically demanding and relatively low paid. Training new hires and getting them security clearance to work at airports also takes months. Spanish offices, stores and hospitality venues will no longer be allowed to set their cooling systems below 81 degrees in summer or rise heating above 66 degrees in the winter. That's under a new set of energy-saving rules. The government bill has generated a variety of opinions among merchants and citizens. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The government passed the bill as part of a bid to reduce the country's gas consumption by 7%. By September 30th, shops will have to keep doors closed and heating systems must be checked more often. The measures include switching off store window lights after 10 p.m. Jorge Morales de Labra is an energy and electricity regulation expert. He says the new measures have sparked debate. The enforcement of this compliance has many problems. The control of these limits is not easy. But regardless of that, what we do have is the debate that has been introduced in the streets. Therefore, people are now considering something that perhaps had not been considered until now. What temperature is the air conditioner at home? The measures have received mixed opinions from merchants and residents. Veronica Lopez runs a family business in the center of Madrid. She believes that closing the doors will limit their clients. In Madrid city center, we, all the small stores, have the doors open because it is a very tourist area. What happens? Closing the doors limits our clientele. The customer, just by having to open the door, it costs a little bit. So, well, changing the door closing mechanism could be a good idea, but we are small and that is another expense. Resident Laura Sanz Bueno thinks it's a good initiative. Yes, I think the measure is great. And in winter, you have to wear warm clothes, and in summer, you have to dress up cool clothes. Spain is one of the hottest European countries in summer. The country has already had two heat waves this year, with temperatures often surpassing 100 degrees for several days in a row. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Wine production in France is expected to rebound this year after frost dealt a huge blow to its output in 2021. But now the country's farm ministry is concerned about the heat wave and drought. Wine production in France is expected to go up this year. That after output was hit by frost in 2021. The country's farm ministry expects production to rise up to 21% or as much as 45.6 million hectolitres. One hectolitre is about 133 standard wine bottles. Much of France, known worldwide for its wine regions, has experienced a heatwave this year. More sunshine has caused vines to flower, although parts of the southwest were affected by frost and hail. But the heatwave also has worrying consequences elsewhere. 
The country has seen wildfires and France's agricultural sector, which is the EU's largest, also fears more losses from the country's worst drought on record. It was affecting grapes in several major winemaking regions and hurting harvest potential in Burgundy. Officials also warned production in Bordeaux was likely to fall below the five-year average after frost and hail damaged 10,000 hectares. Fans of expensive drinks can rest easy, though. The farm ministry said the Champagne region was set for a good harvest. The gas crisis continues to hit Germany's energy-intensive manufacturing sector. A family-owned aluminum foundry is adapting to save on gas. It's opening for three weeks with 24-hour shifts, then closing for a week. The company is also working on a prototype smelting oven that could operate on a mix of hydrogen and gas. And today's Eddie Aitken has the story for us. Gert Reuters is reluctantly preparing to shut down his 200-year-old family-owned aluminium foundry to survive Germany's gas crisis. The gas bill for his factory has doubled since last year and is expected to triple or quadruple in 2023. You have to know that starting up a foundry like this, heating up the furnace is very energy intensive. But when it's running, we can keep energy at a good level here. Shutting it down in the evening, shutting it down overnight, and heating it up in the morning is crazily expensive. That's why we now do it in such a way that we either run it around the clock in three shifts or shut it down completely. Reuters said the plan will save the cost of gas needed to fire up the ovens every morning, even if it means paying staff more to work night shifts. He's in tough talks with customers over who will carry the costs. Our customers are not interested in us going bankrupt. In this respect, we are laying out our prices to customers and telling them they have to pay more. There's no use in delivering parts, putting money on top and earning nothing. Together with an alliance of other aluminium makers, GA Reuters has received government funding to design a prototype smelting oven that could operate on a mix of hydrogen and gas. The aim is to eventually run exclusively on hydrogen. Yet, we are at the beginning of a development. Developments like this often take many years. All the furnaces will probably have to be redesigned, but we are confident we can do it. GA Reuters, with plants in Germany and Czech Republic, produces parts primarily for auto industry clients, airline manufacturers and medical technology firms. Hedy Aitken, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, a massive fire in Cuba is finally brought under control. The fire burned through fuel used for Cuba's energy supply, and at least one firefighter lost his life. And a wildfire returns to a mountain path known as Death Road in Bolivia after the path was closed to human traffic. Travelers now take an alternate route into the Amazon. Find out more right here on NTD News. Good to have you back. Firefighters finally overcame what officials described as the worst fire in Cuba's history. It destroyed 40% of the Caribbean island's main fuel storage facility and caused massive blackouts. 
Reuters witnesses reported that the raging flames at the supertaker port have died down and that the plumes of thick black smoke were diminished and mostly gray. The fire occurred at Cuba's largest port for receiving crude oil and fuel imports. Those resources are mainly used to generate electricity on the island. Lightning struck one fuel storage tank on Friday evening. The fire spread to a second by Sunday and engulfed a four-tank area on Monday, joined by huge explosions. Local firefighters fought the blaze with support from Mexican and Venezuelan reinforcements, more than 100 of them. One firefighter died and 14 went missing. Five others remain in critical condition. The communist-run country is nearly bankrupt. Frequent blackouts and shortages of gasoline and other commodities have already created a tense situation. Chile is seeking accountability for the mysterious sinkhole that appeared last month. Its mining minister says sanctions will be imposed on whoever is responsible. This giant sinkhole is situated near a copper mine in the north of the country. When first discovered, the hole was about 80 feet wide with water at the bottom, but it has now grown to about 120 feet in diameter. Local authorities didn't offer details of the investigation. The mining site is operated by Canada's Lunden Mining Corporation. The company owns 80% of the property. The remaining 20% belongs to two Japanese firms. Chile's mining minister said fines and additional sanctions would be imposed on those responsible. He also stressed that the ruling must be exemplary for the mining companies. Operations at the site are now suspended. Local officials say they hope the sinkhole will set a precedent for future action in the community. Bolivia's decision to open an alternate route to its historic death road has led to a resurgence of wildlife in the area. The area is a serpentine dirt path across the towering Andes Hills, known for its deadly cliffs. This perilous route through the Bolivian Andes is marked by narrow lanes, sharp turns, and deadly cliffs, earning it the name Death Road. But after Bolivia opened an alternate route connecting the capital to the Amazon rainforest and drawing most of the heavy vehicle traffic, Death Road saw a return of native wildlife. Guaido Ayala is a biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Society. Today, thanks to work done, heavy vehicles don't use this road. Biodiversity has come back to this zone. You can see birds such as hummingbirds, toucans, parrots, blue-throated macaws, and many more. You can notice biodiversity returned. And it's very nice to see a place so near La Paz. The route is still dotted with crosses, a way to memorialize those who died on its path. Between 1999 and 2003, hundreds of Bolivians died trying to navigate it. The alternate route opened in 2007, and the original road is now mostly an attraction for cyclists. The WCS set up 35 cameras along the route to document nature's return. Maria Vescara is a biologist with the conservation group. We had cameras 10 years after Death Road was closed. We've seen a large number of species thanks to the camera traps. It is our methodology. We use intelligent cameras placed in the forest. We identified 14 species and we've spotted two more species, so in total, 16 species and around 98 species of birds. But from many tourists and visitors' accounts, we know about 300 species of birds are throughout the death road. They've snapped images of badgers, musk deer, and jaguars. It's a testament to what can flourish 
when given room to return. Archaeologists in Pompeii discovered four new rooms in a previously excavated house. The rooms are filled with objects used by a middle-class household in their everyday life. Scientists reproduced some of the objects with plaster casts, including a bed made of a wooden frame with a net of cords covered by a cloth and cupboards. The rooms were found in an archaeological park where one of Pompeii's largest neighborhoods was located. In another home in the area, archaeologists previously unearthed a beautifully decorated site dedicated to Roman household deities. Pompeii was home to about 13,000 people when a volcanic eruption in 79 AD buried the town under ash, pumice pebbles, and dust. The force of the eruption was equivalent to many atomic bombs. The ruins were first discovered in the 16th century, and organized excavations began about 1750. About two-thirds of the nearly 170-acre ancient town has now been discovered. And coming up, fans and tennis enthusiasts praised Serena Williams after the star said she was evolving away from tennis and planned to retire from the sport following the U.S. Open. Hear the details after the break right here on NTD News. A French freediver broke the deepest dive world record in the Bahamas this week. To do it, he descended to a depth of nearly 400 feet. The dive took 3 minutes and 34 seconds to complete. It's the seventh time the diver has broken the world record in his career, and the second time in the last week. The 26-year-old athlete named Gerald, along with 41 others, was competing in the Vertical Blue, an annual competition that takes place in the Bahamas. This year, from August 1st to the 11th, the athletes can dive six times in any discipline. Gerald chose to focus on the bifins discipline. On the first day, he broke the record with a descent of just under 384 feet before setting a new world record on day four with a descent of over 390 feet. Then on day six, he went one further to break the record again with a descent of more than 393 feet. Fans and tennis enthusiasts praised Serena Williams yesterday after the star said she was evolving away from tennis and planned to retire from the sport following the U.S. Open. The tournament begins later this month. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. 20-year-old aspiring tennis player Hannah Moss says Serena Williams was her idol from a very young age. Moss was training on Tuesday in Carson, California, close to Compton, where Serena and her sister Venus grew up and first started playing tennis. Ever since I was five years old, I just looked up to her, and she's just been a really big inspiration for me. But her retiring is a very sad thing, but you know she's been in it for a long time, so I think it's about time she's you know, living her life now. So, but yeah, it's very sad. Young tennis players praised Williams in Toronto, where she is competing at the National Bank Open. I've been a big fan of Serena Williams ever since I was seven. Um, I was always inspired uh, to be like her and like just to follow her style because she has such a gift and passion for tennis. And Serena, if you're watching this, I just want to say that girl, your game's amazing. Williams said on Tuesday she was evolving away from tennis and planned to retire from the sport after the U.S. Open, which begins later this month. 
On Monday, Williams beat Spain's Nuria Parisas-Diaz to reach the second round of the National Bank Open in Toronto. Like, she's had such a great career. I mean, like she's been integral um, for representing, you know, women of color in sports especially. She's inspired so many girls. Like for me, I took tennis lessons growing up. I've always watched her play, especially in Wimbledon. Um, so I think it's honestly sad that she's retiring, but I'm sure she has, you know, future endeavors that she wants to get into. Tennis coach Henry Calderon remembers how Williams inspired his granddaughter. When she was getting to her semifinals in 2019, and my little girl, my granddaughter walked with her, and she was so nice to her. And I asked my granddaughter, Juliana, I said, how, how did you enjoy walking with Serena? Well, it was an inspiration. Williams won her last Grand Slam in 2017. She's been chasing a 24th Grand Slam to tie with Australian Margaret Court, who holds the record. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Here's a bit of health advice. If you're looking to minimize dental visits, focus on removing foods that harm your teeth. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Did you know your mouth requires a balance of bacteria and saliva to keep teeth healthy? Food choices influence that balance. Tooth decay is now the most common chronic childhood disease. Older folks too need to take note. Choose the right foods for your oral health and it will determine the outcome at your next dentist visit. We have good and bad oral bacteria. Food starches and sugar mix with the bacteria creating acidic fluids. They launch attacks on teeth enamel. It then loses its protective layer resulting in cavities. If left untreated, you can expect pain, infections, and tooth loss. If you want to keep cavities away, then try to avoid the following food and drink. Avoid soft drinks and so-called fruit-flavored drinks. The acids in these drinks erode enamel and dry out the mouth. Sweets, candy, pastries, and cookies, anything sweet, sour, or chewy, ban them. They result in cavities. Bread is another one to avoid. Chewing bread creates a mush that sticks to teeth spaces. A better option is 100% whole grain, no sugar breads or crackers. Citrus fruit is very beneficial for your health because it has plenty of vitamin C, but it is also packed with acids that harm. Always brush or rinse with water after consuming citrus. Let's look at some good food options, starting with cranberries. Cranberries promote healthy teeth and gums. A pigment in them helps to prevent bacteria clinging to surfaces. Leafy greens are a tasty way to maintain oral health. Containing phytochemicals, they manage oral bacteria. They are a rich source of minerals, including calcium. Calcium is essential for building healthy teeth and bones. It also prevents gum infections and bleeding too. Dairy foods. Calcium and phosphate help to fortify your teeth's surfaces. Milk and cheese are great sources. Also, don't forget about yogurt. Quality yogurt with probiotics maintains good oral bacteria. Casein, a protein found in dairy products, neutralizes mouth acids arising from bad oral bacteria. And finally, water. Are you getting enough of it? Water keeps you hydrated and proper hydration helps to produce saliva. Saliva prevents gingivitis and bad bacteria. 
Water also clears residual food particles, leaving that clean feeling. So there you have it, a few tips on how to minimize dental visits. Here's a touching gesture of sportsmanship at the Little League World Series on Tuesday. A batter who was hit by a ball later goes up to the pitching mound to hug the pitcher who hit him. Tulsa's Isaiah Jarvis was struck in the head by a pitch during the Southwest Regional Championship of the Youth Baseball Tournament. It was a scary moment for Jarvis, the coaching staff, and everybody in the stands, but Jarvis eventually stood up and made it to first base. Then he noticed pitcher Caden Shorten for Texas East was distraught. The youngster walked over to hug Shorten and could be heard saying, hey, you're doing just great. Texas East went on to win the game and qualify for the Little League World Series, but it's Jarvis's gesture which will be remembered long after the tournament. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.